0: experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 183 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, executive producer and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing okay. How are you, Michael? Oh, I'm doing all right. (laughs) We talked before the show. My, I'm not having a stellar week,
1: but this, this is probably going to be the high point. We're going to, we're (laughs) going to turn it around here. We're going to have a a fun episode and it's going to make it all okay. I
0: hope so. So, well, in our previous episode, we celebrated the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World by exploring the history of Discovery Island in Bay Lake. Well, The problem is, is that that's a place that nobody can go to anymore. So in this episode, we continue our celebration by taking you on a tour of Walt Disney World uh, today that you can go to as we look for references of the Walt Disney Studios package films. When Disneyland opened in 1955, there were plenty of references to the films created by Walt Disney and his team, including Sleeping Beauty, Peter Pan, Dumbo, Snow White, and The Seven Dwarfs, and The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. And the aesthetic of several of Walt Disney's live action films were mirrored in the architecture of Main Street USA. So as much as we complain about intellectual property being in the parks today, and I'm one of them, um, there was plenty of intellectual property in Disneyland when it opened back, back on July 17th, 1955. Mm-hmm. When Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom opened in 1971, the tradition of attractions based on Walt Disney films continued, with the films Cinderella, Peter Pan, Dumbo, Mr. Toad, and more recently Song of the South, scheduled to be reimagined to Princess and the Frog, The Little Mermaid, and Beauty and the Beast. Even more Disney animated films are represented in the other Walt Disney World theme parks, such as Frozen at Epcot and The Lion King at Disney's Animal Kingdom. And then there are the Pixar films, but we're not getting into those (laughs) in this episode. Whilst most guests are aware of the references to the animated feature films in the parks, they may not notice that Walt Disney's package films, a name given to a series of films the studio released in the 1940s as a result of World War II when the studio could not afford to produce full-length animated films, also appear in the theme parks. The package films are Saludos Amigos, released in 1942, The Three Caballeros in 1944, Make Mine Music in 1946, Fun and Fancy Free in 1947, Melody Time in 1948, and The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad in 1949. And even though these films are readily available on home video in Disney+, many Disney fans don't watch them, preferring instead the full-length animated films. And this is a shame, because these films played a significant role in the history of the Walt Disney Studio and in the theme parks. Many feature animation that continues to be cutting-edge today and highlight the talents of many Disney legends and popular music at the time. So... Put on your walking shoes and mouse ears as we head out to look for references to the Walt Disney Studio Package Films. So we're going to start with, uh, I think, two of our favorites, Saludos Amigos and the Three Caballeros. Yes, definitely two of our favorites. Mm hmm. Saludos Amigos was the first of the package films released in 1942 and is set in Latin America and combined live action with animation. This film is divided into four segments. Lake Titicaca. uh, In this one, Donald Duck is an American tourist who takes a visit to Lake Titicaca and interacts with the locals. And of course, I remember my being a fourth grader in geography and giggling every time that particular (laughs) lake came up. Being a, you know, nine-year-old boy. Y- you still um, don't laugh at it? Because <laughs> I
1: just did. <laughs> I'm
0: surprised they haven't renamed it. Uh, and, and most likely, it's not even pronounced that way. Oh, yeah. Probably, probably. has a completely different <laughs> pronunciation. Um, and then there was Pedro. Pedro is a small airplane from Chile who takes his first flight to pick up mail and goes through a fierce storm along the way. There's El Gaucho Goofy, in which Goofy is depicted as an American cowboy who visits Argentina to meet the native Gauchos. There's Watercolor of Brazil. I I could not pronounce the uh, real name, uh, real title of this, so this is the translated Title, Watercolor of Brazil. Mm -hmm. We meet Jose Carioca, a cigar smoking parrot who gives Donald Duck a tour of South America. Then there's The Three Caballeros, which was released in 1944 and is also set in Latin America and combines both live action with animated sequences. And there are seven segments in this. There's The Cold Blooded Penguin. And that this is about a penguin who dislikes the freezing conditions of the South Pole. He decides to leave his home for a warmer climate and navigates the coast of Chile before landing on the Galapagos Islands.
1: It's the true story of retirement from the north to come down to Florida.
0: Just kind of flipped. <laughs> Reversed <Yeah>. a little. <laughs> yes.
1: uh, that's my dream
0: trip, the Galapagos Islands. It's yeah. on my bucket list someday yeah. to go there. Then there's the flying gauchito, tells the story of a little boy from Uruguay and a winked donkey named burrito, which is Spanish for little donkey, which I will always wonder the next time I order a burrito, what is really in it? <laughs> <laughs> then there's baella, baia. Uh, I'll sue I, I out all this. Apologies to our Spanish-speaking I believe, friends. I believe you were right the second time with Bahia. Okay, thank you. I could be wrong. This is a trip through Brazil using a pop-up book theme, which I thought was always very cool. Donald and Jose meet up with some locals, dance the samba, and Donald becomes smitten with singer Aurora Miranda. There's Los Posadas, This is the story of the Mexican Christmas tradition in which children recreate the journey of Joseph and Mary as they seek shelter, or posada. This leads to a festive party that includes the breaking of a piñata, and Donald attempts to break his own
1: piñata, and as you can imagine, it doesn't go well. I always forget about this segment when we're talking about like Christmas movies and such, because you know it's just one small piece of it but it does you know if you want to to learn more about than just our heritage and learn about los Posadas, then it's las Posadas and then it's it's actually really fun to watch this one and it's so beautiful so so good it's
0: beautiful well mary blair's
1: artistry mm-hmm. is really highlighted in this yeah it's, uh, it just, it fits perfectly. It's like, it's a match made in heaven. Honestly, I can't think of the style of this segment to be any different than what it is. It just, it's just mm-hmm. not, it doesn't work in my head like that. Yeah. Yeah. Th- this is actually one of my favorite
0: segments out of the whole film. So. Okay. And then there's Mexico. Potscuaro. Uh, However you say it, Veracruz <laughs> and Acapulco. And we meet a new friend, Panchito Pistoles, a rooster from Mexico who carries pistols, gives Donald and Jose a tour of Mexico and its culture. Along the way, Donald becomes smitten with several lovely young women. I, I guess he uh, gave up on Aurora Miranda yeah. m- along the way.
1: Yeah, we uh, <laughs> didn't really highlight those in the in the Donald episodes that he, uh, he was definitely uh, – he was looking – He was looking for love, maybe in all the (laughs) wrong places. I don't know. I I think we might have mentioned that
0: he he did have a reputation for having a healthy libido. (laughs) 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 And then there's two segments that sort of run into each other. You belong to my heart and Donald's surreal reverie. This takes place in Mexico City where Donald falls in love (laughs) with singer Dora Luz before dancing with Carmen Molina. And this is a chaotic sequence with Donald, Panchito, and Jose popping in and out of scenes. In the film's finale, Donald battles a toy bull on wheels before there's a fireworks show. And the, I love the animation in, in this particular sequence. It's, um, it, it, it's, it's, it, it is very surrealistic. You know, Ward Kimball had, he went wild with this sequence. Oh, and yeah. and um, I think it's beautifully done.
1: Yeah, it, it's honestly, it's we've we've talked about it a lot, and especially with with talking about movies like Fantasia and such. But this is one of those moments, and I think we've mentioned it before. when talking about Three Caballeros, uh, this is one one of those situations where you look at it and. It is hard to believe that it's all how it was done back in that time period. It's just, it's flawless. It is, it is just uh, like, I don't even have the words for it. And this was still early, early, early in the years of animation. This was by no means when they were already seasoned veterans at this stuff. So it's, it's strikingly beautiful. Mm-hmm. And, and that it was all hand-drawn
0: mm-hmm. is amazing. You know, no, no computer rendering here. So. so where can we find references to Saludos Amigos and the Three Caballeros at Walt Disney World? Well, you've probably guessed, in the Mexico Pavilion at Epcot. Besides celebrating the various cultures of Latin America, the Mexico Pavilion features an attraction that highlights both these films. The Grand Fiesta Tour featuring the Three Caballeros is a relaxing boat ride in which guests help Jose and Panchito find their pal Donald Duck. The attraction combines, well, it did combine (laughs) audio-animatronic characters and video footage to celebrate the culture of Mexico and help us enjoy the lively hijinks of these three characters. However, as of this recording, the audio-animatronic figures of the three caballeros have been replaced with painted flats of the characters. So, And let's hope that's temporary as they work to bring the audio-animatronic figures back up. Yeah. To working condition.
1: Oh yeah.
0: yeah, and and prior to the pandemic, Donald Jose and Panchito would meet guests and pose for photos in a meet and greet location on the path outside the pavilion. So, uh, so C- Craig, do you feel that Saludos Amigos and Sweet Caballeros is well represented in the parks? Are there other opportunities? If we're going to do a little armchair imagineering, are there other opportunities? For these films to be um, brought out a little more,
1: hmm. I you know I am one of those people where I enjoy Gran Fiesta Tour, but you you know one of the things that's always kind of stuck with me is that it took a lot of the the bones of El Río del Tiempo and and it was just inserted into that with the three caballeros. I, like I wish they would have they would have taken a little bit more effort to actually better try to represent the movie and the, both of the movies and and make it fit in a little bit more with the, the journey you go on in the movies. I feel like that would have helped. But at the same time, too, it's the Mexican Pavilion. So really, we're only focusing on this one small little part of the three caballeros. So at the same time, I, I get that. But keeping that in mind yeah i feel like i feel like it does deserve a little bit more because you're really taking that one small section out of the movie and saying that this is this is representative of of all of it and like i'll give you an example with uh, las posadas during the christmas holiday season this past year they had they had um the the mariachi el mariachi cobre at at epcot plane and i would have loved if they could have incorporated even a little bit more of three caballeros the movie into it as they were telling the story of las Posadas. but uh, beyond that too like i feel like there's opportunities to bring in a lot that's in saludos amigos like i've i've seen uh gaucho goofy merchandise before so that that's a thing but like i love the pedro section and and if we ever get a, another pavilion with a little bit more of a South American culture to it, like I would love to be able to to see that represented more in. But uh, one thing you didn't mention with it too is that uh, at least the three caballeros do have a second home too outside of the theme parks at Disney's Coronado Springs Resort because they are featured in some of the artwork at the hotel and like the gift shop is Panchitos Gifts and Sundries. So while the Grand Destino Tower at Coronado Springs is focused on uh, Destino, Dolly's Destino, uh, the rest of the hotel has a three caballeros look to it. So uh, they, they at least get a little extra love. Oh, well, that's good. Good. So,
0: yeah, I didn't get into the resorts, but so I'm glad you're bringing that up. So, yeah, I stayed there once. Carol and I and the children, we stayed there once and
1: I, I enjoyed that resort. It's I really like one it. of my favorites it it actually is i still I still owe you a dinner at the three bridges bar there the next time you come into town so you can have the best burger on property that we've oh, talked looking, about before. <laughs>
0: I am looking forward to that yeah. <laughs> so i and I could see. I know we're talking about Walt Disney World, but Disneyland, I could see them bringing something in like Las Posadas into Frontierland because we do have mm-hmm. that small section that's devoted to Mexico. And um I could see them doing that at Christmas, yeah, do, doing something with that with that segment in that area of the park,
1: yeah, and I mean, they do get a little bit of they get a little bit of love during the Christmas time uh season back in, in California Adventure too, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes, they do. Yeah. It's it's I feel like it's been a while since I've been there at Christmas. <laughs> I d I don't even remember the last time I, I was there at Christmas. Yeah. So but I felt like I remembered that they were back there from way, way, way back when the last time I was out there. But they could even do that at the Mexico Pavilion. They should. They is, they honestly is... yeah. They need more.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: No. Okay, the next one is
0: we're going to take a look at it, is Make Mind Music. Six of Walt's Nine Old Men were the animators for Make Mind Music. Uh, Eric Larson, Ward Kimball, Ollie Johnston, Les Clark, Bill and John Lonsberry. And Disney artists and legends Mary Blair and John Hench provided art supervision. Claude Coates worked on the backgrounds, and Ub Iwerks worked on process effects. So if you've been listening to this show for any length of time, these are all very familiar names to you and so a lot of lot of big names were involved in this package film and make my music is divided into 10 segments that are set to musical scores the martins and the Coys, the popular radio vocal group the kingsmen sings the stories of the Hatfields and McCoy style feud in the mountains. The feud is broken up when Grace Martin and Henry Coy, two young people from each side, inadvertently fall in love. And if you're thinking, I don't recall seeing this, it's because it has been pulled from, uh, from this, uh, film because of, there's a, uh, abundant use of gunfire. In in this segment, as you would expect from two feudin' mountain
1: families.
0: (laughs) um, Blue Bayou features animation originally intended for Fantasia using the Claude Debussy's Claire de Lune. It features two egrets flying through the Everglades on a moonlit night. But by the time Make My Music was released, Claire de Lune was replaced by the new song, Blue Bayou, performed by the Ken Darby Singers. However the original version of the segment still survives All the cats join in portrays hep cat teens of the 1940s being swept away by the popular music of Benny Goodman and his orchestra this segment has been heavily edited over the years because there's um I guess there's there's animated nudity uh, okay. in it as as the uh, young hep cats are changing clothes and all that in a very quick, quick, you know, um, animated, uh, rhythm to the beat of the music.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: very similar to the, t- the type of that we saw in the, um, pastoral segment of Fantasia. Gotcha. That kind. Without You is a ballad of lost love. Casey at the Bat, Jerry Colonna, who would go on to voice the March Hare in Walt Disney's 1951 animated feature, Alice in Wonderland recites the poem, also titled Casey at the Bat by Ernest Thayer. It's about an arrogant ball player whose cockiness was his undoing. The setting is... 1902 in the town of Mudville. A few moments are exaggerated or altered and music is added. A sequel cartoon to the segment called Casey Bats Again was released in 1954. Two Silhouettes features two rotoscope live-action ballet dancers moving in silhouette with animated backgrounds and characters, and Dinah Shore sings the title song. Peter and the Wolf is an animated dramatization of the 1936 musical composition by Sergei Prokofiev with narration by actor Sterling Holloway. A Russian boy named Peter sets off into the forest to hunt the wolf with his animal friends, a bird named Sasha, a duck named Sonia, and a cat named Ivan. After You've Gone Again, after well, I say after you've gone again, features Benny Goodman and the Goodman Quartet as six anthropomorphized instruments: um, piano, bass, snare, and bass drums, cymbal, and clarinet, who parade through a musical playground. Johnny Fedora and Alice Blue Bonnet tells a romantic story of two hats who fall in love in a department store window. When Alice is sold, Johnny devotes himself to finding her again. The Andrew sisters provide the vocals. Again, this is really highlighted by um, Mary Blair's style. The Whale Who Wanted to Sing at the Met is the finale of the film and a bittersweet story about a sperm whale named Willie with an incredible musical talent and his dreams of singing grand opera. A rumor is spread throughout the city about an operatic whale, but is seemingly disproven because the short-sighted impresario Teti Tati believes that the whale has swallowed an opera singer. He concludes this after studying the story of Jonah and the Whale so. We'll have to go to the Magic Kingdom for a tribute to the Casey at the Bat segment at Casey's Corner on Main Street USA. Besides the name, this counter service location includes signage, pictures, and fun references to the film segment. And I also like their mini corn dogs. (laughs) A tribute to Willie the Whale can be found in the queue for one of my favorite attractions, Mickey's PhilharMagic 3D. Posters advertising upcoming theatrical performances line the walls of the queue, including one for the I Pagliaccia being performed by Willie the Whale. And that's about it. Unless are there any other references uh, in like any of the resorts?
1: No, Craig, uh, uh, as far of? as I know, there there's not. Um, I know Hollywood Studios a long time ago. It, they used to have. Um, a poster up for Johnny Fedora and Alice Blue Bonnet, but that was that was in one of the the gift shops, like right as you're coming into the park down the main stretch on Hollywood Boulevard. That was in one of the ones that got uh, that got refurbished in the past three four years, give or take. So uh, that's no longer there. But other than that, uh, it, it make my music just does not get represented well in the parks and. I mean, arguably, though, you could say Casey at the Bat, which we have nothing but amazing things to say about it. It's one of the best the best shorts Mm -hmm. uh, that that Disney has ever produced, in my opinion. But it gets a very fair representation as as uh, one of the most beloved quick service dining locations in Magic Kingdom, not just the restaurant itself, but even the seating area having having that entire section still continue the baseball theme and uh it's just really perfect um but besides that i mean this movie just does not get love but it's also one of the like it's one of the only movies that's not on disney plus that you you can't watch and i i just it's a shame that this movie isn't getting getting the recognition it deserves. But like a lot of people just focus on Casey at the bat and Peter and the wolf and, and even Johnny Fedora and Alice blue bonnet, which I understand all of those, but I, I would love to see some Peter and the wolf brought into, uh, into the parks if they could do that, because that was one of my favorite segments growing up. I believe they used to show it, uh, as part of the animation channel loop at Disney resort hotels, um, I, I believe that was one of the ones that they showed in that loop that just constantly circulated. So I've seen it so so many times. I, I love it so much, but yeah, not not a lot for the parks. A number of the segments
0: of these packaged films were um, were released theatrically individually, mm-hmm. you know, including and one of them was
1: the uh, Peter and the Wolf, and another one was Casey at the Bat. Yeah. And it makes sense. Those are those are the stars. So Mm -hmm. I, I totally get why they would release them release them as well too, but just needs a little bit more representation, in my opinion. I agree.
0: Okay, Fun and Fancy Free was released in 1947 and was made up of two stories. First one was Bongo, and Jimmy Cricket appears inside a large plant in a large house, exploring and singing I'm a happy-go-lucky fellow, till he happens to stumble upon a doll, a teddy bear, and a record player with some records, one of which is Bongo, a musical romance story <clears throat> narrated by actress Dinah Shore. So Jiminy decides to set up the record player to play the story of Bongo and the stories about the adventures of a circus bear named Bongo who longs for freedom in the wild and what happens when he breaks free. Now Mickey and the Beanstalk is narrated by Edgar Bergen in live action sequences who with the help of his ventriloquist dummies Charlie McCarthy and Mortimer Snurd tells the tale to child actress Luanna Patton at her birthday party. With Jiminy listening in after having read an invitation shortly after the previous story ended. This is a retelling of Jack and the Beanstalk featuring Mickey Donald and Goofy as three peasants who discover the temperamental Willie and the Giant's Castle in or Willie the Giant's Castle in the sky through the use of some magic beans. And they must battle the greedy but lovable giant in order to restore peace to their valley. And Mickey and a Beanstalk was the last time Walt Disney voiced Mickey Mouse in a theatrical feature. And uh, though Fun and Fancy Free is primarily animated, it uses live action segments to join its two stories together. And and both of these segments were released um, separately theatrically.
1: Yeah, I actually didn't even see the the live action portions <clears throat> until it was on Blu-ray. I, I skipped it when it was released on DVD somewhere along the lines, but when I bought the Blu-ray and popped it in the first time, it's like what I do not remember any of this. So that was that was a pleasant surprise.
0: I have uh, in my collection from when I was a little boy. I have a 78 rpm record that tells the story of Bongo
1: yeah and that's i didn't i didn't know about bongo for the longest time because i grew up watching tapes that only included um only included Mickey and the beanstalk so mm. bongo was something I, I discovered later on and mm. i i it's you know i i'm getting a better appreciation for bongo because of it but yeah i was i was all mickey and the beanstalk mm. well that was
0: a turning point in mickey's career as we discussed uh A few episodes back, we were talking about Mickey Mouse.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, owing to the popularity of Mickey and the Beanstalk, there are several references to it in the Magic Kingdom at Sir Mickey's in Fantasyland. The facade of the shop incorporates pieces of the beanstalk growing on the roof, covering the chimney, hanging out of the windows, and holding the shop's sign. And the beanstalk theme continues within the shop. Look closely at the ceiling and you'll see Willie the Giant's huge fingers lifting the roof and his eyes peeking inside, similar to a scene from the film. He does the same in Mickey at Mickey's Christmas Carol.
1: Yep, yep. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a classic look. It's a great look mm-hmm. for him. Why not use it as much as possible?
0: <laughs> I agree. Okay, Melody Time was released in 1948 and features the work of Ollie Johnston, John Lounsbury, Milk Call, and Ward Kimball. The film features seven segments with colorful animation set to musical scores. Once Upon a Wintertime, Francis Langford sings the title song about a romantic young couple on a winter day in December during the late 19th century, and pretty much in every Disney Christmas compilation you will see this segment yep
1: but it's beautiful
0: (laughs) it is it's gorgeous Bumble Boogie is a surrealistic battle for a solitary bumblebee as he tries to ward off a visual and musical frenzy. The music by Freddie Martin and his orchestra with Jack Fina playing the piano is a swing jazz variation of Rimsky-Korsakov's Flight of the Bumblebee, which was one of the many pieces considered for inclusion in Fantasia. I think this is, again, another remarkable piece of
1: animation. Oh, I, I completely agree with you as well, too. So I, I, but I almost think that all of Melody Time is nearly perfect. But I agree. I think as we go through this, this is the one
0: folks will be most familiar with, yeah, because so much of it has been released individually. Uh, a number of these segments were released theatrically and played on on television, yep. um, individually. The Legend of Johnny Appleseed is a retelling of the story of John Chapman, who spent most of his life roaming the Midwestern United States, mainly Ohio and Indiana in the pioneer days, and planting apple trees, thus earning his famous nickname. He also spread Christianity along the way. Dennis Day narrates as an old settler who knew Johnny well and provides the voices of both Johnny and his guardian angel. Little Toot is based on the story of Little Toot by Hardy Grumatki, in which a small tugboat wants to be just like his father Big Toot, but cannot seem to stay out of trouble. The Andrews sisters provide the vocals. Trees features a recitation of the 1913 poem Trees by Joyce Kilmer and music by Oscar Rossbach, performed by Fred Waring and the Pennsylvanians, with a lyrical setting accompanying animation of peaceful scenes seen through the changing of the seasons. I think this is, it's a very beautiful and relaxing yeah. segment. Underrated. Yeah. I agree. Blame it on the Samba, which think would have been in Three Caballeros or or something, has Donald Duck and Jose Carioca meeting the Araquan bird, I don't know if that's how you say it, who introduces them to the pleasures of the samba. The Dinning sisters provide the vocals and organist Ethel Smith appears in a live action role. Again, very surrealistic. And then Pecos Bill is about Texas's famous hero, Pecos Bill. He was raised by coyotes and later became the biggest and best cowboy that ever lived. It also features his horse, Widowmaker, and tells the story of the ill-fated romance between Bill and a beautiful cowgirl named Sloughfoot Sue, with whom he falls in love at first sight. This retelling of the story features Roy Rogers, Bob Nolan, Trigger, the horse, And the Sons of the Pioneers, telling the story to Bobby Driscoll and Luana Patton in a live-action framed story. And I think I first saw this when I was really little at Disneyland, because before the Horseshoe Review, Golden Horseshoe Review, um, they would show this. um, How cool. So that you knew who was Pecos Bill and who was Slewfoot Sue. I guess that makes sense, yeah. (laughs) That would be helpful. Yeah. When it was a sit-down table service restaurant. Yeah, yeah. They did that. So, so I think out of all of the package films, like we were saying, folks are most familiar with all of these segments. And if you are a fan of Melody Time, you can find tributes to both Pecos Bill and The Legend of Johnny Appleseed when dining at the Pecos Bill Tall Tale Inn and Cafe in Frontierland. Hanging above a fireplace is a portrait of Pecos Bill and his faithful horse, Widowmaker. Three separate lariats hang on the fireplace's rustic wood mantle, and Pecos Bill's cowboy hat also hangs above the mantle, and his six shooters are displayed in a nearby case on the wall. Slewfoot Sue's spurs and gloves are also displayed in the restaurant, along with a personal note to Pecos that reads, To Billy, all my love, Slewfoot Sue. Widowmaker's picture hangs on a wall with his bridle hanging beside it, and Johnny Appleseed's signature tin pot, which also served as his hat, hangs on a wall in one of the restaurant's seating areas. So, and I, I don't know what else, how else they could pull in anything from Melody Time into the parks.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I was having thought as I was, I was listening to you talk here, thinking that there was also some uh, some homages to Once Upon a Winter Time inside like, Jingle Bell, Jingle Bam, but I scrolled through really quickly to try to see if they ever featured some shots of it in that show, and I couldn't find it, at least from the 2019 version that I had in front of me. Uh, but that's like, you know, that's kind of the only one that I could see truly getting referenced inside the parks in a way as if they wanted to use uh, sequences from once upon a winter time but i also might have been misremembering that because i believe that one for sure is used in world of colors um holiday show so i might have been blending the two together a little bit with that Mm -hmm. but uh yeah besides that i mean Pecos Bill is the the way to go with it and obviously very much like Casey at the Bat with Casey's Corner. Uh Paco's Bills is a it is a love letter to that portion of the short and it is well themed. It just it, you can't ask for much more from it. It's it's really nice. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Now the only way they could pull him in more is to bring back
0: you know the Golden Horseshoe review.
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, that being uh, said, I would also like uh, blame it on the Samba to be featured a little bit more if it could be. But that's just me. If if they could have put more of that into the Mexico Pavilion, the
0: Grand Fiesta Tour, bring that little bird in there.
1: Oh, yeah. No, th- that, that bird should great. be everywhere. <laughs> Think if you're th- it should be on living with the land. Think if you were going <laughs> through the gardens and it just started popping up. <laughs> oh. And then
0: we have the Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. 1949's The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad tells the stories of two literary works. The Wind in the Willows is set in and around London, England between June tenth, nineteen 1908 and January first, nineteen 1909. The protagonist, J. Thaddeus Toad Esquire, is introduced as an incurable adventurer who never counted the cost. As the story's one disturbing element, although he is a wealthy proprietor of Toad Hall Estate, Toad's adventures and positive mania for fads have brought him to the brink of bankruptcy. As a last resort, Toad's friend, Agus McBanger, volunteers as Toad's bookkeeper to help Toad keep his estate, which is a source of pride in the community. One summer day, McBadger asks Toad's friends Ratty, a water rat, and Molly, a mole, to persuade Toad to give up his latest mania of recklessly driving about the countryside in a horse and canary yellow gypsy cart, which could accumulate a great deal of financial liability and damaged property. Ratty and Molly confront Toad but are unable to change his mind. Toad tries to escape from them, but then sees a motor car for the first time and becomes entranced by the new machine, having been taken over by motor mania. Both pandemonium and hilarity ensues. And in The Legend of Sleepy Hollow... In October 1790, 14 years after the American Revolution and founding of the United States, Ichabod Crane, a lanky and superstitious yet charming dandy, arrives in Sleepy Hollow, New York, a small village outside Tarrytown that is renowned for its ghostly hauntings, to be the town's new schoolmaster. Despite his odd behavior and appearance, Ichabod soon wins the hearts of the village women and forms good friendships with his students, mainly to get invitations to suppers at students' homes, which he would not be able to afford on his meager salary. Brom Bones, the roguish town hero, does his best to bully and play pranks on Ichabod. One day at a town picnic, Ichabod meets and falls in love with Katrina Van Tassel, the beautiful daughter of the wealthy farmer Baltus Van Tassel, and with whom Brom is equally infatuated. The two love rivals are invited to the Van Tassel Halloween party, and discovering Ichabod's weakness is superstition, Brom Bones decides to sing the tale of the legendary headless horseman in order to scare him. The horseman supposedly travels the woods on Halloween each year, searching for a living head to replace the one he had lost. And the only way to escape the ghost is to cross a covered bridge. Everyone else, including Katrina, finds the song amusing, whilst Ichabod starts to fear for his life. Riding home from the party to the very woods from the song on his old borrowed plow horse, Ichabod becomes paranoid of every sounds he hears in the dark woods. Whilst traveling through the old cemetery, poor Ichabod believes he hears the sound of a horse galloping towards him. Is it the Headless Horseman? We'll have to leave it up to you to decide. On well, episode 178, we talked about the history of the Mr. Toad's Wild Ride attraction in both Disneyland and the Magic Kingdom, which was inspired by Kenneth Graham's Wind in the Willow stories and the Walt Disney Package films. And also where tributes to Mr. Toad can be found today. In Liberty Square, there are several tributes to Sleepy Hollow and Ichabod Crane. On the Christmas shop, you'll see a sign for the rooms above advertising music and voice lessons by appointment, Ichabod Crane instructor. You can enjoy some savory waffles and other tasty delights at Sleepy Hollow refreshments in close proximity to the bridge leading into Liberty Square from the central plaza. The Headless Horseman regularly appeared at Mickey's not-so-scary Halloween party, and he came out prior to the parade and galloped down the street whilst waving his jack-o'-lantern head, and he will stop at the bridge near Sleepy Hollow Refreshments, and this is in reference to how his spirit is unable to cross the bridge in the film. He will slowly cross before continuing his ride past Cinderella Castle and down Main Street. In past years, a special return to Sleepy Hollow event was held at Disney's Fort Wilderness Resort. Guests were able to watch the animated short near the horse stables and take photos with the headless horseman in a special character photo op. So th- these are probably the best known segments uh, are the best known of the package films
1: yeah yeah for sure uh y- even if you know them individually and not necessarily together uh it, it uh, i mean it's hard to not know it especially <laughs> if you're a fan of walt disney world then uh, a newer fan of walt disney world then chances are you know about the legend of sleepy hollow because of of the halloween party or maybe like you mentioned more obscurely with the the Fort Wilderness event but e- even with Mr. Toad I feel like I feel like Disney fans who after they come once and they learn a little bit about history they automatically know about Mr. Toad's presence in the parks before before Pooh stepped in and such so <laughs> it's like it's one of those it's one of those situations where everyone everyone just knows they they know about Toad they they know about the little bit of tributes to to sleepy hollow it's just it's it's right in that park in that in a in a great way i mean i would love mr toad back in walt disney world as well too but it's hard to it's hard to argue that sleepy hollow and the legend of sleepy hollow doesn't get a doesn't get a good amount of representation in magic kingdom it gets it gets a lot. <laughs>
0: It does. It, it you know, I'm always intrigued by the fact that originally they were going to have, you know, an Ichabod Crane, you know, Sleepy Hollow attraction yeah. in Fantasyland. That would have been good. Too bad there's not room in Liberty Square.
1: For, yeah I, I would, uh, for an attraction. You know, if ever one day they decided to get really bold and crazy and and completely pave over the rivers of america and extend that footprint in the park and and add a little bit of extra room onto liberty square add a little bit into Frontierland, land and make another new land I, I would not be opposed to a uh a, an extra headless horseman legend of sleepy hollow dark ride in that area but i mean that's a big that's a big if because people would lose their minds if we lost rivers of America mm-hmm. there. It's just it's perfect where it is. Oh, I know, and it's nice to have the water. It is in the park too. But it's I mean, pretty. One day, one day the overlords will look at it and say, "Why are we wasting all this space with what a boat?" And that will also be the day that they make a a bridge, a walkway that completely. Uh, negates the need to have the the fairies take people back and back and forth to the magic kingdom and everything just breaks down
0: (laughs) oh let's hope that day doesn't come
1: (laughs) exactly it can come one day just not when we're around to actually see it yeah
0: Yeah, and I'm delighted that these package films have not been forgotten and that they inspire Disney theme park designers and Imagineers. Uh, I mean, even today, uh, when they brought the um, Oogie Boogie's Halloween Bash over to Disney California Adventure on Buena Vista Street, there's this amazing statue of the Headless Horseman Mm -hmm. that sort of comes to life, you know, at night when the party launches.
1: Absolutely and does. All
0: that. And so it's nice that they, um, they still, they continue to draw from these classic package films. So if you've not seen these important films from the Walt Disney Studio, I hope we've inspired you to watch them. I know in going back and just reviewing them and writing up these little brief descriptions, it's gotten me to want to go back and rewatch them. I rewatched them recently. Like last year, because I'm chronologically going through Disney Plus, but, and, and watching films. And I did watch Alice in Wonderland <laughs> this past week. But, um, but, um, if you haven't seen them, you know, these important films, I hope we've inspired you to watch them. If you have watched them, we hope you'll use this episode as a guide to find these tributes and post photos of yourselves with them on our Twitter page at Connecting Walt. So let us know that you sought them out and, and found them. And maybe you'll find a tribute that we missed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there'll be a, you know, and post that as well. So now let's explore this week in Disney history. Well, it's Valentine's Day week, Craig. So love this is week in the air. disney history. Everywhere yes I it look is. <laughs> it is. So February 14th, this restaurant that opened on February 14th, 1929 at 1624 Vine Street in Hollywood, California, would be the inspiration for a popular restaurant at Walt Disney World. What is the name of this establishment?
1: I the only thing that makes sense to me would be guessing Hollywood Brown Derby. Absolutely. The original Hollywood Brown Derby restaurant. The Brown Derby
0: restaurants began as the brainchild of Herb Somborn, Wilson Misner, and Sid Grauman. Somborne will ask Bob Cobb, later the creator of the famous Cobb salad, to manage the Vine Street establishment. Eventually, Cobb will take over all the restaurants after the deaths of the original owners. And like I said, the Hollywood Brown Derby will serve as the inspiration for the restaurant in Disney's Hollywood Studios. One of my
1: favorite places to eat. Oh, yeah. Still still is one of my favorite places. I, I cannot wait to get back there sometime soon. Mm-hmm. February 15th, in an exclusive ceremony at Disneyland on
0: February 15th, 2006, hundreds of cast members come together to show their love for one of the park's original attractions, the Disneyland Railroad, and to join in the dedication of two additions to the railroad. What was dedicated on this day?
1: What was the year again, sorry?
0: 2006.
1: I'm gonna say I think it was around this time when they brought the Lily Bell on
0: that's correct the Lily Bell VIP parlor car
1: and I'm struggling to think of something else It's the new Ward Kimball steam engine. Oh, okay. Yeah,
0: the early morning event at the Frontierland train station is hosted by Disneyland Resort President Matt Wiemann and honors the namesakes of the engine, legendary Disney animator Ward Kimball, and the restored parlor car named after Walt Disney's widow, Lillian Disney. Gotcha. Okay, February 16th. The second daughter of Walt and Lillian Disney passed away from complications from cancer at age 56 on February 16, 1993. What is her name?
1: That would be Sharon. Sharon. Right.
0: Disney. Right. Sharon M. Disney Lund. She had been a director of the Walt Disney Company since 1984 and an officer of Retlaw Enterprises Incorporated a successor to the corporation her father organized in 1952 for certain personal business ventures. The California Institute of the Arts will later rename its School of Dance, the Sharon Disney Lund School of Dance, following a gift of $11 million from the Sharon D. Lund Foundation. So February 17th, Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color airs Part 1 of Banner in the Sky on February 17th, 1963. This is a retitled and re-edited television presentation of which Walt Disney 1959 feature film?
1: I believe this is one of the movies I love the most that I wish would be added to Disney+, and that's Mm -hmm. Third Man on the Mountain. Absolutely.
0: I wonder why they renamed it, retitled it.
1: I don't know why, <laughs> honestly. Um, I, I only wonder, I, I think it was based on a book, too, even though I think it was based on a true story, but then also a book. So maybe they didn't mm-hmm. have the the rights to use it for television. Yeah, that's, but that
0: might be. Who
1: knows? Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right, February 18th. Under storm-threatening skies, the greatest winter athletes in the world gather in Squaw Valley, California on February 18, 1960 to begin the 8th Olympic Winter Games. The opening and closing ceremonies are orchestrated by Walt Disney, who is the head of pageantry for the Games. The opening ceremony, delayed by an hour because of heavy early morning snowfall, includes daytime fireworks, a first for the Olympics. Which Disney artist designed the massive Tower of Nations located at the entrance of the valley and the Olympic torch for the Games?
1: I do not remember. I feel John like Hent. Okay, yeah. I I would have got there, but not right away. Yep. <laughs>
0: Yeah, the huge ceremonial Tower of Nations measures 79 feet high and 20 feet wide. And Hench's unique Olympic torch design will be the model for all future torches. And when the Walt Disney Family Museum opens, you can see one of John Hench's torches at the museum. February 19th. A circus act in the Mickey Mouse Club Circus Tent opened at Disneyland on February 19th, 1956. The act features a college professor turned lion tamer who had previously performed with the Wrinkling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus. What is the name of the act? I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Keller's Jungle Killers. That's it. Just rolls off the tongue. Yep, that's it. It includes African lions, tigers, leopards, mountain lions, jaguars, black panthers, and a cheetah. Keller will continue his show at Disneyland through September. Originally a popular college professor of visual arts at Bloomsburg Teacher College in Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania, Keller's interest in show business started back in 1939 when he ran a jungle farm sideshow in his spare time. And if you listen to my sixty years of Disneyland um, series, I get into this show and some of the insanity surrounding it, (laughs) (laughs) so with animals escaping and running along the Disneyland railroad track, all kinds of stuff. Fun, yeah. Okay, February twentieth. Wed Enterprises, first created in December 1952 to oversee the design of Disneyland, is renamed on February 20th, 1986. What is the new name? Walt Disney Imagineering. Correct. And the term Imagineering is a Portmanteau word that combines imagination and engineering. The term was coined by Richard F. Saylor in an article titled, Brainstorming is Imagination Engineering, which was written for the National Carbon Company Management Magazine in 1957, and the term was adopted by Walt Disney. Okay, Craig, not too bad this week. (music) All right. Well, I know you talked about this on our Walt Disney World show, but, you know, last week we mentioned uh, there's, there's a great brand new book coming out for the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World. Well, there's some little books coming out little yeah. golden books to be exact. I already have one and and I I got it a few weeks ago. It's a small world is coming out and then one on the jungle cruise and then is coming out in the spring and then later in the summer the haunted mansion. And so I'm definitely adding these to my collection so we wanted to give folks a heads up. Yeah. How is the small world Anyways. one? It's cute. It, it it tells the story of the uh of the um, you know the attraction
1: mm-hmm.
0: and all that and the artwork is wonderful.
1: Good in
0: it, I really like it. It's definitely in the in the golden book
1: style, you know, of art, which that, so. I mean is beautiful. Mm-hmm. So that's what you mm-hmm. you want, anyways. So that's that's exciting to hear. I'm I'm all for even if it's like it with if it takes little golden books to get more like these attraction books out. I I'm all for it. Like, I I, I loved when they started to kind of get close to do, like, they did the Jungle Cruise mm-hmm. book from Imagineering with the CD with it. And they did one for Haunted Mansion. And then it seems like that just ended and disappeared. Yeah, so They
0: did one for It's a Small World as
1: well. It's funny that they're just choosing those books. I know. It's, the, it's those three. Yeah, yeah, I don't know what it is. But <laughs> hopefully this ends up being more. So I would really I'd be happy with that at the very least i i I think that more books like that are just it's something interesting, something different for your collection,
0: yeah, yeah, and it's nice for young children to introduce them to the parks and the attractions
1: exactly something that you know it's a, it's like an extra souvenir that they can bring home in a way and that you don't have to buy on vacation. save yourself some money, but get home and say, "Hey, remember we wrote this." Yeah. Well, in the Haunted Mansion book, Little Golden Book Might Be Nice for
0: Children, that maybe you can prepare them if you think they might be a little nervous about the Haunted Mansion. Well, read them the Little Golden Book first. Very good point. Yeah.
1: And hopefully it's not featuring Eddie Murphy. (laughs) No, it's it's only Eddie Murphy, actually. No in there. <laughs> and then you had mentioned, and I didn't know this.
0: Um, there's a Jungle Cruise book, a big coffee table book on the, and it's about the film and the attraction that's coming out that you can also pre-order. And I don't. I'm just wondering how much of it is on the film, and how much of it is on the attraction.
1: Yeah, yeah. I they haven't really. I I just I was. Digging in, trying to find more information about upcoming books, and that one just kind of came across my uh, came across my eyes there, and hadn't hadn't seen anything about it before. I'm I'm hoping it is very similar to to the the Haunted Mansion and Pirates of the Caribbean books that I'm hoping that it's inspired by. But I, I want more about the parks than the movie, obviously. But mm-hmm. it, there's got to be a couple pages on the movie at the very least but uh, yeah i i would like a little bit a little bit more in depth on the ride itself and hopefully some facts and pictures that we haven't seen before
0: i hope so yeah and and i agree with you i hope it's more on the attraction I'm, than on yeah, the film
1: and i'm sure they're going to explain a little bit more about the the retheme in the books as well too not i shouldn't say re-theme, but the the updates to to bring the new storyline into the attraction as well as making it more inclusive. So I'm I I sure it's going to cover that. that as well.
0: Will, will the book come out after the the new storyline is introduced?
1: Well, open? We still don't have... We know it's the new storyline is going to be here before the end of the year, I think they said, and the book is due out this summer. So uh, we, might, we might get exclusives on more of the story in the book because it would seem silly to not to to put out the book and then not include the changes that they're going to make i agree you're just outdating yourselves instantly (laughs) well then
0: you can get people to buy the second edition Uh,
1: yeah except like in the pirates case they've never released the second edition of that whereas they did release the second edition of the Haunted mansion one Mm-hmm. so it's like you can't trust disney anymore to release second editions so that's i that's mm-hmm. what i want to see next from disney disney second editions where they go through all <laughs> of their the books that have been long out of print and they give them a second life
0: that would be nice that would be nice
1: it would and
0: then as of since you're our film um expert on the diz getting your thoughts on this it it was announced today as of this recording that disney and this is no surprise disney's closing fox's blue sky studio
1: yeah it's I, i understand it from a perspective of it's not really necessary for their business model but uh it's it's slightly insulting in a way too because it's not like it was a small studio um Obviously the Ice Age films were what they were and before Blue Sky was animation at all it, it was an effects company as well too and you know, the Peanuts movie, I, I love that. I I watch it every year, usually around the winter time. It feels like a good a good time to actually watch that. But uh I they've done good work and I feel like it's their last their last movie that was out in theater, Spies in Disguise, I mean that just came out at a terrible time. Uh so it was it was just when the world was starting to get a little weird because it came out right around Christmas, and I mean, after that, well, we, a month, month and a half before people started getting weary about what they were doing, just in case something was going to happen, and so I, I feel like I feel like it was just—it's a sad ending to a studio that that why why not let it live and have its name because you know they they even said that they were. Like, yeah, there's one more thing coming with Ice Age. I, I forget how they described it back when they did the Disney Plus uh, panel, or not panel, but the Disney Plus presentation that was online a couple months back. They they mentioned the one Ice Age thing, so there there's still life for some of those properties, but I get it. They have to make business decisions, so not it's not always going to be pretty.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's too bad. But um I haven't seen that Peanuts film. It's, I remember when it came out, but I never it's good. Saw it.
1: It's good. It's on Disney Plus, so you'll watch it eventually. It's just really it's really sweet. Um it's I feel like it captures a lot of the it captures a lot of the energy of uh a Charlie Brown Christmas and it's the great pumpkin Charlie Brown. A lot of that. Even like going with the you know some of the ones that came after that necessarily weren't as big like thanksgiving and such it still kind of captures that that feeling to it but it also then blends in how more modern animation takes place not necessarily with disney but you know there is pop music in it and it's not all just like it's not all jazz from vince garaldi as much as i would i would be very fine with that and okay but i I feel like it did it it honored what came before it while trying to open up the peanuts to to a new audience and really try to thrust it it forward and you know it's i i still haven't really dug into peanuts now on apple tv the the new snoopy show just came out so there's there's a lot more to get into with it but i i feel like i feel like it's worth the watch and Mm -hmm. if you love snoopy it's you're going to rewatch it a lot.
0: Oh, good. Okay. Well, I definitely will. I grew up with those Charlie Brown specials, so yeah. I'll look forward to that. Well, besides my own personal experiences visiting the parks, I used a few references in putting together this episode. Um, a book, Magical Half-Century, Stories Celebrating Walt Disney World's First 50 Years by Christopher E. Smith. I liberally used Wikipedia, all over the place and then celebrating the 70th anniversary of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Kevin Kozola
1: so Craig until next time how can our listeners connect with you I am on all the normal shows that I'm normally on on the Dis Unplugged Podcast Network and then always on Facebook Twitter, Instagram at Teleclaster and you can email me Craig at WDWinfo.com what about you Michael?
0: You can send me email messages at Michael at www.info.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling dash connecting with Walt. Instagram, I'm Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at connectingwalt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at DisneyPlug.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and Amazon Podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible.